age-old question. Why are the beautiful ones always crazy? The elusive yet obvious answer. Because insanity is a passable excuse for idiotic behavior. That's the opening moments to the song Charming Psychotic by our guest today, Jeff Lyles. This week on the Dogger and Muddy Music Show, we wrap up our three-week series on musical candy stores. We check in on concert halls. Over the next 12 months, you're going to see some concerts. We know that. Some may be outside, at a stadium, at a festival. Others in large arenas. Some at good-sized theaters. But to me, you better set aside some of your concert money for intimate concert halls. Places where the musicians are right there. You can actually see and feel up close what the artist is trying to convey. Maybe it is a veteran artist who is asking you into their living room for a one-on-one show. Or it is that band that is throwing everything into it. They're on the cusp of breaking it big. In New York, maybe it is the Bowery Ballroom. Chicago, the Metro. Preservation Hall is a classic in New Orleans. Los Angeles, it's the Roxy. In Dallas, I recommend the Kessler Theater in Oak Cliff, a musically rich area of Dallas. It has been home to T-Bone Walker, Edie Brickell, Michael Martin Murphy, Ray Wiley Hubbard, Stevie Ray, and Jimmy Vaughn, to name just a few. Today we're going to talk with Jeff Lyles, who manages and supervises the music events of the Kessler You will find that beyond his work at the Kessler, he also spent time at the Roxy Theater in L.A., is a recording artist, and is one hell of a music historian. Let's get started. This is the Dogger and Muddy Music Show. Listen up. It's all about the music. Let's check in on the artists, songs, and people behind the scenes. Are you listening? Dallas and Texas are very proud of their musical heritage. One of the physical icons of the Dallas music scene is the Kessler Theater down in Oak Cliff. I'm sitting in the upstairs lounge area with Jeff Lyles, the artistic director for the Kessler Theater. If anyone has lived, studied, and played a role in the Dallas music culture, it is Jeff. Raised in Richardson, Texas, a rocker in high school, from there he shifted into the event coordination side of the business, moved to L.A., managed the Roxy Theater, recorded and released Cottonmouth, Texas, an album full of his songs, then came back to Oak Cliff, thanks to some prodding from Edwin Cabanis, who had acquired the rundown Kessler Theater in 2009. Jeff, before we discuss Dallas and Kessler music history, can you take us through your personal music history and love for song? Can you get us started? Yeah, sure, Doug. Uh, When I was a kid, I guess I was like four years old, my grandfather gave me a copy of the Beatles' uh, Sgt. Pepper's album, which, you know, triggered an an interest in the Beatles. Uh, I bought literally every record you could ever get by the Beatles before I realized that other people made music. Um, (laughs) I think it was Sly Stone's If You Want Me to Stay. It was the first song I heard by somebody else that kind of made me go, wow, that's not John, Paul, George, or Ringo. (laughs) And uh, yeah, from there I got into soul music, got into all kinds of uh, 
amazing rock bands, classic rock bands, of course. I was really into Led Zeppelin when I was a kid. And then um, discovered punk rock in 1978. The Sex Pistols, Ramones, bands like that. Um, got into that for two or three years and then got into hip-hop music when hip-hop first started to happen around 1984. I was in a rap band for a while, a decadent dub team. Um, did that for a bit and then started putting on shows, promoting shows. Yeah, you did that at uh, Theater Gallery, right? Russell Hobbs kind of took you under his wings? Yeah, that was my first booking gig was Theater Gallery and, of course, Profit Bar, which opened up right across the street about a year later. So what's the, what's the trick to learning how to booking bands? What's the ins and outs of that? First, obviously, you have to love music. You have to be able to tell what's good and what's not. You have to be able to tell uh, which artists are sincere, which ones really are dedicated to their craft, and which ones are just trying to be rock stars or just trying to be, you know, gimmicky personalities. Um, you know, and of course, just meeting as many people as possible. That's the key thing, just knowing everybody, trying to know everybody. Are they calling you trying to get gigs at that time frame? Are you reaching out to them? Is it a little bit of both? Well, for a place like the Kessler, most of our shows are touring acts. So the artists are routing through town. They've already got their tour planned out where they're going. Uh, You know, they come to Dallas. There's probably three or four different places they can play. Each venue will put in a bid for them. And, you know, whichever deal works out best for the artists is where they end up. Which, well, that sounds financial. But I get the impression that the Kessler is kind of a different place from other locations. Uh, can you expand maybe on that? Yeah, sure. We have, we have a different set of parameters that we go by. Um, we're not really interested in putting on shows by, say, artists that play on TV talent shows. You know, we don't really want we don't want an act that uh, was on America's Got Talent or whatever, because there's plenty of other places in town where people can go see those type of acts. We would rather be the place where the dedicated musician comes you know the people that have been playing music their whole lives and and you know did it the right way they weren't trying to get a fast break to start them by being on tv when when uh, edwin bought it it was as i've read it was really torn down um did you help in laying out the design plan because uh, it has a a very comfort level a great comfort level to it when you come here uh, the architectural design and layout is Edwin's idea. That was, I mean, he, when he got this building, he knew exactly what he wanted to do with it. Uh, one of the reasons he bought this building is because his wife owns a dance studio for kids here in the neighborhood. So that was the first uh, kind of job one was making sure that that space got laid out properly for her dance studio. Uh, and then he went to to you know, a lot of different architects and different people and, and sound design people and, and just got a whole bunch of really good ideas and uh, came up with a concept for the interior. So the band shows up. What's your team's responsibility then to <laughs> take care of them? And you know, you a chuckle there, so I'm sure it varies yeah. from band to band. Well, and then it, in getting them up on stage, what all does it take? And, and there may be some hidden stories there, I'll bet. Yeah, the first person that the band always sees when they get here is Kenny backstage. Kenny uh, has been part of the Dallas music scene for, I don't know, 25, 30 years. He's a drummer, and he's our backstage guy. And when a bus pulls up, tour bus pulls up with a van or whatever, Kenny is the one who helps them park and gets them situated and gets their shore power going and, and tells them where all the local restaurants are. And, and he, he takes care of them for probably the first two or three hours that they're parked on our, our property. 
And, uh, and then he's also the last guy to see him at the end of the night. He's the guy that helped him lock up the trailer and show him which way the highway is. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you get, you get him on stage and then do, uh, I would assume there's a sound check during the, during the yeah, early, yeah. late afternoon, the right? The bands will arrive, you know, early, mid afternoon, bring in all their gear, set it up, do a sound check that lasts about an hour, hour and a half. Uh, then the opener sound checks, and then we set up the room, and then open it up and let people in. Any tricks to uh, the person working the mixing board to get it right? No, not really any tricks. There aren't really any shortcuts in this in this business. I mean, really, production is job one at the Kessler. We approach it the same way a record producer would, you know, the way they would approach a recording session, and that really that principle that that kind of value that 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 was instilled by paul quigg our original technical director paul you know has been in this business 40 years and takes it very very seriously and he was the guy that really picked out our production gear when we first opened Uh, he was our front of house engineer for years he mentored a lot of younger people who are now on our production staff but it was paul's ideals his set of ideals for setting the bar so high to make sure that really production is the main thing that we're known for. Yeah. And you, you've got a heck of a team here. I mean, I've, I've been coming here for gigs for a long time and it seems to me that it's the same face is always here. Yeah. Paul, Paul was the technical director for the first five and a half years that we were open. And most of the people that work here now are people that Paul has trained, you know, and that's, that's just the way it is. And they just, you know, they uphold his original principle and that's, you know, that's that's why it sounds so good. He's a record producer. That was his main thing. He wasn't like a, a live show sound guy when when we first started this thing. He had always been a musician and a record producer, and this was a uh, an opportunity for him to kind of take that same skill set and apply it to a live venue. And it feels like that every every time you come in here to see a show, it feels like you're kind of sitting in on a recording session, at least from a, a sound quality perspective. So in, um, I'm guessing, in the early 2000 time frame, you headed out to L.A., and you, I understand you worked with Marilyn Manson and some other things out there. Can you kind of take us through your L.A. experience? Yeah, sure. Um, I didn't actually work with Marilyn Manson, but I worked for a production company that made music videos. And uh, we did two of the videos that got Manson on MTV for the first time. We did uh, the Sweet Dreams Are Made of This video. And also the tourniquet video, and also actually the beautiful people video too. And uh, the, this place that I worked, it was called Underground Media. It was a it was a production house that represented five or six music video directors. Uh, in this case, Dean Carr was the guy. He was one of our directors. He was the guy that did the Sweet Dreams video. He's an amazing photographer and director. Uh, Floria Sigismondi was another of our directors. She was the one who did the beautiful people and the tourniquet videos. And she was really interesting. She's a brilliant photographer, too. She was known as a fashion photographer, and her parents are Italian opera stars and um, very, very talented. And then we also had another director named Fred Sturr. And Fred was a stop-frame animation artist. He was the guy that did the tool videos for Prison Sex and Sober. And they did those before I actually met these people and started working there. But their legacy was amazing. The the number of music videos they did during the 90s, it was incredible. I mean, they broke Dave Matthews. They did the Crash video, Don't Drink the Water video. Uh, Dean, That's great stuff. Yeah, Dean Dean Carr. I mean, the guy who directed those clips, I mean, he he got those guys on MTV. Back when MTV mattered, you know, when they showed music videos and they had the ability to break an artist. 
That's great. And I was very low on the totem pole there. I basically just <laughs> typed up treatments. I mean, uh, what treatments are is when a, when a, a label releases a record and they say, hey, we're going to do a music video for this song. They talk to a bunch of different production companies in town and solicit treatments, which are like real quick little one sheets of your idea of how the music video should look. So I would sit down with the director and the director would tell me all their ideas and then I would just type them up real quick and make it sound like a real quick pitch. And that's how they landed them. Good. So you're doing that. And then all of a sudden, tell, tell us how you got over to Roxy Theater on Sunset. Well, that was weird, man. I always loved the Roxy. When I was a kid, my dad had taken me to see Bill Bruford's band play there uh, when I was a teenager. And I just fell in love with the, the venue. That was like in 1980 or something like that. And, of course, it's a legendary venue. Um, it was owned by Lou Adler. Uh, oh, wow. Who is the guy that produced uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show and the Cheech and Chong records and Jack Nicholson's best friend. He's that guy who's always sitting next to Jack Nicholson at the Laker games. That's right. So his son, Nick, was was running the Roxy. And I literally, uh, I'd been out in L.A. for a couple of years and I kind of felt like I was at the end of my rope and I packed up my car and I was driving back to Dallas. And I was literally about to get on the highway with all my stuff in my car. And it was during the morning, and I drove down Sunset Boulevard, and I noticed the front door of the Roxy was wide open. And I thought, man, I need to peek in there and see if it still looks the same. So I just pulled over real quick, and I peeked my head in there. And Nick Adler, Lou's son, was sitting in there uh, doing something on his phone or whatever. And I walked up and introduced myself, and he's like, yeah, I've heard of you. Man, you should come here and work. And I was like, man, I'm about to drive back to Dallas. He goes, no, man, I'll get you a place to stay. you got to stay here and work. That's awesome. It was awesome. It was kind of completely random and out of left field. And, I mean, it was it was an amazing gig. I mean, to work there for two years and just kind of just see all the crazy stuff and all the meet all the people that come there every night. I mean, there were nights where, you know, the, the calendar would just have a yellow spot on it, which meant we were open, but we couldn't say who was playing there. So I would go to work without knowing who was going to be playing it. It would end up being the Well, they wouldn't pistol. even tell the team. No, they couldn't. It's, the place is too small. There's no way. I mean, they could they couldn't. And I would come in and be the Sex Pistols or the Black Crows or the Red Hot Chili Peppers or, you know, U2. You know, U2 played there not too long ago. That's so cool. And it's a place that's smaller than the Kessler. You know, it holds 320 people. And there's U2. So you're basically sitting in their lap while they're performing for you. Yeah, I mean, it's tiny. It doesn't have a balcony. I mean, everything is right there in front of the stage. and. We did all kinds of stuff in the daytime, you know, when we weren't even open to the public. We'd do video shoots for MTV Unplugged, you know, and it, it, was, it was an amazing gig, man. It really was to be able to work there and kind of see that whole culture. That prompts, uh, I'm going to kind of jump on you here. I read that uh, you saw U2 and some other bands before they were big in Dallas playing at, you know. Cardi's. Car- yeah, small places. So t- take... I've had uh, I've had a couple of experiences like that where you you're seeing somebody before they're big, but take our listeners through that. What it's like and how, how you had a sense that these this band or this particular group was going to make it. How do you know that when you you're sitting in front of this hot new band? Well, I'll tell you what. In the, in the late '70s and early '80s, Dallas used to have a radio station called KZEW, the Zoo, and on Sunday nights they had a show called the Rock and Roll Alternative. And George Gamark, who was the DJ, uh, was singularly responsible for putting alternative rock music and punk rock music in front of a Dallas audience. 
um, you know, you could tune into that show. There was nothing else like it on the air. You could tune into that show and hear you two for the first time or the clash, you know, or bands like that, you know, that were psychedelic furs bands that were pretenders that were, that were, you know, brand new at the time, you know? And one of the things they did is a 98 cent concert series around town. And that thing that you two played literally was a dollar to get in. And there was a wet t-shirt contest in the club afterwards. <laughs> To help draw the crowd. Of course. I mean, to draw their regular crowd. Because that, that club that they played was a rock and roll bar. It wasn't the kind of place you would ever expect to see you too. But the Pretenders played there. Uh, the Cramps played there. A lot of these, these punk rock bands and alternative rock bands coming through to Dallas for the first time came through on that series. And that's what introduced a lot of people to these acts. So 15 years later or whatever, you're seeing him at the Roxy, still in a small environment. And I mean, to say the, we're, we're kind of st staying on you 2 here a little bit. So here's kind of the definition of huge concert venues, and all of a sudden they're in a small one. What were they like 15 years later? Well, I'll tell you what, the, probably if you ask people which was the best Alice U2 show ever, they'll always say it was the one at the Bronco Ball. Because the Bronco Bowl was an arena, but it was a tiny arena. It only held 3,500 people. So every seat was basically within 150 feet away from the stage. And a lot of, I mean, if you talk to different people about the history of Dallas music or whatever, what was the best venue of all time, it was the Bronco Bowl in Oak Cliff. You know, um, over the years that it was open, they, they started having the alternative rock and the punk rock bands around 1980. It was 462 Productions that brought them in. A lot of those acts that played at the Hot Club when they were they played the first time in Dallas, like The Police, those type of bands, XTC, they played at the Hot Club first. And so when they, start, when they started doing these shows at the Bronco Bowl, they were bringing in everybody from, man, uh, The Cure, you know, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam, all of these bands that went on to be huge all played the Bronco Bowl at least once. Prince played there, you know, Bruce Springsteen. I mean, I love Deep Ellum. Deep Ellum is an amazing uh, neighborhood, tons of great venues and tons of great history. But there are some bands that never played Deep Ellum. You know, Prince never played in Deep Ellum, you know. Uh, David Bowie never played in Deep Ellum. Bruce Springsteen never played in Deep Ellum. But they all played the Bronco Bowl. You know, the Bronco Bowl has a, a, a legacy that it's just really hard to touch. And before that 1980 period, when they first started doing those kind of shows, there was a whole nother le life of the Bronco Bowl before that, where they did acts like Ray Charles and Fats Domino and, and those at Chubby Checker. Awesome. You know, that whole era. And most people don't even know that era existed, but it did because they, they had only gone to the Bronco Bowl from 1980 on. And they probably saw Metallica there, or System of a Down, you know, so many great shows. D'Angelo. Well, people, you've written some really cool articles uh, for the Dallas Observer, right? About kind of the history of Dallas music. Yeah, yeah. What, what that the name of that series is? If people echoes are, and reverberations. Yeah, echoes yeah. and reverberations. Yeah. So people can check that out. So you come, but you do finally get back in the car. And you come back to Dallas. Now, you're not going to stay here, you don't think? No, I was actually, I was still living out there. I came back here uh, for a holiday, and I was visiting with my family. And Edwin called me up out of the blue and said he had just purchased this building, and would I come check it out and look at it as a, as a live music venue? And at the time, it was Thanksgiving, and I was hanging out with, with my mom and my grandparents and all that, and I just couldn't really, like, 
you know, I couldn't get away to do it. And he called me a couple times and asked me to come down here. I finally did. And, um, you know, I came over here and this building had been empty for 15 years. So it was, you know, it was dirty and dusty on the inside. All the wood in the interior was kind of rotted away. I mean, it was going to be a huge, huge uh, job to rehabilitate the building. And I, I didn't know if it was even going to be possible, to tell you the truth. And Plus, there was another challenge, wasn't there? Because there, uh, it was dry. The area was The neighborhood dry. was dry, yeah. I mean, that was kind of one of my first... Uh, question marks i was just wondering how you were going to do a live music venue without being able to sell alcohol right and they had back then they had like a, a waiver kind of thing where you could get people to join a private club as they came in and the first two years that we did that that's how we did it and and we kind of found out uh during that first two years that our audience isn't really here to drink you know they do drink but that's not they're not going out to a club the same way other people do to get kind of their thing on our shows are usually over with by 10 45 or 11 and that was kind of one of the things that that uh surprised me you know was how alcohol doesn't really factor into it i think there's a lot of different reasons one of them people don't want to get a dui on the way home yeah you know they're being responsible and they don't they don't drink as much as they used to you know they really they're not teenagers anymore you know but it's a real comfortable environment. I, I know coming here and you get here a little early and you sit up at the bar and sip on a shiner or whatever. Yeah. It's a nice environment. And then, you're, then you head to your seat. Yeah, yeah. So how important do you think uh, music is now to Oak Cliff, to Dallas? Well, our, you know, as the artistic director of this place, my, my main motivation is kind of to recapture a, uh, a time period of... of kind of an analog time pattern uh, period for lack of a better word um just back to the days when a, a, a musician could sit there with an instrument in their hand and entertain a room full of people they weren't really reliant on technology or gimmick or or whatever and one of our first kind of protocols for artists that can play here is if the electricity were to go down in the building would you be able to pull a stool up to the front of the stage and keep the room occupied and entertained until it came back on i like that and, and a lot of them can. I would say 85, 90% of the artists that play here could do that if need be. And that's really kind of, you know, it's, a, it's who you are as a musician or not, you know. You've had some great shows here recently. Rodney Crowell was here in early July. He just won the Americana Song of the Year Award for It Ain't Over Yet, a song in tribute to his good bud, Guy Clark. Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians did a really cool midnight gig a couple weeks ago. I love Charlie Sexton's show. He does not get enough credit for what he brings to the music scene, both as a musician and a lyricist. Great skills. He in turn was recognized at the 2017 Americana Music Awards as Instrumentalist of the Year. You know, all three of those artists have kind of like a a weird connection. It's weird that you would bring them up. Uh, Rodney Crowell's last album was produced by Kim Bowie. And Kim Bowie is the talent scout who discovered New Bohemians. I love it. Yeah, she was Ken Bowie was uh, the the A and R person responsible for putting together the Sound of Deep Ellum compilation album, which was came out in 1987 on Island Records, and it was the first record uh, that introduced the Deep Ellum music scene to the rest of the country. And it was Reverend Horton Heat's first record. It was New Bohemian's first record. My band DDT, um, Three on a Hill, who was like the preeminent rock band in Deep Ellum around 1985, 86. And um, and also had an artist on there 
a group called Legendary Revelations, who were older jazz and blues musicians who had played in Deep Ellen back in the Prohibition era. But that, that uh, yeah, I mean, mentioning those acts all together, whatever, Ken Bowie is kind of the one common denominator. With she, all three. Yeah, and now she's in Nashville. She's the head of, I, I can't remember what the name of the record label is, but she just signed the Texas Gentleman. Very good. Oh, yeah, then uh, they just came through Dallas a little bit ago, they I think. They live here. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Oh, when Edie was here, one of the things I loved about it is if, if y'all were listening, I mentioned that she's from Oak Cliff, and during a break between songs, she's talking about riding a skateboard down the streets <laughs> during the concert, you know. In yeah, the, in Edie the was born at Methodist Hospital right around the corner from here. Yeah. So from from your vantage point, uh, you know, your your writings as well as your work and et cetera, um, do you think – Musical culture has progressed over the last 10 years in Dallas? Uh, that's hard to say. I really don't know. Um, I kind of, I mean, I can see two things that are evident. Okay, one, we've got a group of people that really love this neighborhood, the X-plus neighborhood right by Bishop Arts. Um, those are people our age. There are people usually between the ages of, say, 25 and 60. Um, and then over on the other side of downtown, Deep Ellum has blown up larger than it has ever been before. I mean, uh, even at our best, at Theater Gallery or Trees, when Trees first opened, you know, on our best night, we'd have maybe 2,500 people down in the neighborhood. And now you go down there on a Friday or Saturday night, and there's 10,000 people down there, 15,000 people. It's very, very different. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it, it props up a whole economy down there, people working, musicians working, finally getting paid. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good thing on both levels. It's hard, it's hard to say whether the whole cultural thing has turned in Dallas because it's the real art and culture scene is up against gentrification. And that is, is it's an ongoing battle. You know, it's hard. It's not easy at all for artists to do their thing, make a, make a living doing it. Right, right. The uh, speaking of an artist, uh, we mentioned earlier the Cottonmouth Texas. Have you? I think you mentioned a couple of years ago in an article that you may go in the studio again and write do some music. Have you thought about that? Are you got any plans on that side of the house? Yeah, you know, Cottonmouth Texas was always kind of a hobby. It really wasn't anything that um, I could ever do full time because I was working in venues and doing other things. But, you know, you never know. If if I had a little bit of extra time or whatever and could set a month aside to go into a studio and do it, I certainly would do it again. But it's been probably 15 years since I've, I've made that kind of effort to do it. Yeah. I've just had other stuff going on. And also, you know, most of that Cottonmouth, Texas stuff that I wrote was written in first person. It was kind of autobiographical. Right. And I'm, I don't really want to write from that perspective anymore. You know, I've done enough of that. You know, I really kind of would write more i'd be more into writing about history and writing about the history of our community and our culture yeah so so that'd be that'll be a change in style and yeah approach. this stuff the, the early cottonmouth stuff was easy to write you know because all i had to do is write down what happened you know and what i'd really kind of more rather get into now is other people's stories and and the way the trajectory of how our culture started over here and ended up over here you know in your style you 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 uh you you talk through your songs. Yeah, kind yeah. Of, Lou Reed was famous for doing some of that as well, but uh, can you talk to your style a little bit? Yeah, actually, you know, I can't sing, and I, I, was, <laughs> I, I can, and I was a rapper when I was younger, but that, to me, I'm 55 years old, I'm too old to be an MC, so I don't really want to do that either. 
but the Cottonmouth record, uh, the first one was really kind of an accident. And I'll tell you how it happened real quick. I was out in California. I was in Los Angeles on Venice Beach. And I ran into an A&R person from A&M Records. And she said, hey, if you want, I can book you in the A&M Studios to, to go in and make a new record if you want. And at the time, I was thinking about doing an instrumental record. I wanted to do just a lot of beats like the Deccan and Dub team stuff. And I only knew one person in L.A. that had a sampler. And I called him up. His name was Mick Petralia. He was a DJ out there. And I said, hey, can you bring your sampler up to the A&M studio tomorrow? I'm, I'm, I've got this studio time booked. I don't have any gear, but I just want to come up with a demo for them because they're giving me this opportunity. So the next day, he says he'll make it. He doesn't show up. So I'm sitting there in the studio with no gear, no idea, no songs, nothing. And the engineers are like sitting there, you know, what are you going to do, man? And I had these notebooks that had this kind of diary stuff that I had written on the beach in Venice. And I said, do you mind if I read these notebooks onto tape in case I ever lose these notebooks and I'll have at least some record of it? And they're like, it's your time. Do whatever you want. So I went through these one by one, just reading them all first takes, not really performing them, just reading them on tapes, just so I would have a document of them. And I spent all afternoon doing that. Okay, so the next day, Mickey shows up with his sampler. And we start making all these beats, and we spend all day doing all these instrumental things. On the same piece of tape, where the voice was, but the voice was muted. All right, so Mickey didn't have any idea that I had even recorded all these vocal parts. So we're making all these beats and getting, you know, we'd rack up four two-inch tapes worth of beats, you know, in, in an afternoon. Just all kinds of killer, just old funk riffs that we right. looped together, you know. And it was amazing, and it sounded great. And at the very end of the day, the engineer pressed the mute button where my vocal was from the day before. And rolled it all together. And, rolled, and it, they were on the same part of the tape. And Mickey looks at me and goes, what is that? And I was like, oh, that, nothing. It was just a story that I read on a tape. He goes, no, man, that works with the beat. And we went through all the parts of the tapes. And everywhere where we had looped beats on there, my vocal was already there as and, a, and, as a and ghost. It, we couldn't hear it because the mute button had been pressed all day. So at the end of the afternoon, when the guy was just going through each track to see what was on what, he unpressed the, the track with the, with the vocal on it. And it was like, whoa, that works. So is, your, your, your vocals accident. work from a beat perspective with it right there. Perfect. That's funny. It was eerie. It was really bizarre because that was not what we intended to do. That's not what we were going in there to do. And uh, even the engineer was like, I've never heard anything like this. I've never seen anything like this. And, 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 and the A&M studio is a big studio. It's a big complex. Oh, it's huge, yeah. With four different studios. I mean, Trent Reznor was in there mixing a record. Tommy Lee was in there cutting a drum part with some band. You know, there were, there, I mean, I'm in this little tiny studio in the corner, you know, coming up with this, like, miracle record, you know. It was, it was really bizarre. And, and the album, when it finally came out, ended up getting nominated for a Grammy. I didn't realize that. Yeah, in the best spoken word category. I ended up losing to Hillary Clinton <laughs> for a book on tape. It takes a village. Well, I would have voted for you if I'd known. I just I didn't realize well, they, There was a period of time, you know, when the demos from those sessions... The cassettes of it began to kind of sneak out into LA and all these labels all of a sudden out of nowhere were calling me you got to come 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 play this for our president I, I took meetings with Irving Azoff and David Geffen and all these people they were all convinced my record was going to be the next big thing that is so cool oh, it didn't turn out cool I ended up signing I with Virgin and I ended up being the lowest selling artist in the history of their label but it was an amazing little window of like a month or a month and a half where all you were these, the next thing. Yeah, and it was just because I was from Texas. 
It was purely because I was from Texas. Because when I first, you know, did that demo and put the cassettes out, all I had on there was Cottonmouth. And a lawyer got a hold of, of Teresa, the woman that put me in the studio, and said, there's already an artist called Cottonmouth, so you've got to tell this guy to change his name. So I just put slash Texas on the end of it. And it, boom, as soon as the Texas part came on it, the people started calling the next day. Now, that's fascinating. <laughs> to me, sometimes it's a good, I get the impression, in the musical community, sometimes it's good to be a Texas artist. Sometimes it's not so good to be a Texas artist. You hear about all the guys that go off to Nashville, Willie Nelson and Robert O'Keefe and others, and then they, they don't fit. They're renegades for, to, to the Nashville kind of sound. They come back here. And some of them do really, really well in Texas and do somewhat well outside of it. Others explode out. Is there a good and a bad to being a Texas musician? I, you know, I don't really know how the industry perceives artists from Texas right now. But I know that back then, during that period, when I was doing that stuff in the 90s or whatever, there was an incredible fascination with artists from Texas. Because so many of the the labels were based, you know, their, their A&R staff was based in Los Angeles. The way to see artists was when the band came to Los Angeles, you just go to their show. And just go see them. And you go and you look out in the audience and there'd be eight or nine A&R guys there waiting, all checking out the same band. But Texas was geographically just out of reach. So an A&R person had to get on an airplane and come here and see a band in our element. And I can't tell you how many times they did it. They came to Deep Elm and saw the New Bohemians playing at the Profit Bar or saw Rigor Mortis playing at Theater Gallery or, or whatever. And, and having that advantage... Our acts being able to, for them to be able to see them in our element rather than you know playing one out of four or five bands on a bill in a club in L.A. where they don't even get a sound check, you know that doesn't get, let them put their best foot forward. But these A and R people, at least back then, I don't really know if it's the same now, but back then they were fascinated with stuff from Texas because it literally was just out of reach from what was going on in Los Angeles. You know, the only way you were going to know about it is if you went there and saw it firsthand. And so a lot of these artists from Dallas, a lot of these artists from Austin, they, being where they are, they weren't influenced by, say, the industry and the way that the industry was responding to stuff in Los Angeles or New York. They could still be themselves. They could still have this Texas culture to what they do. Very good. And that's why that happens. I can't really think of any other place, maybe other than Nashville, where there's a destination in the country, well, Seattle, too. Uh, where you know a certain sound or something singular that made them different than every everywhere else um, happens, and and really the one thing that that was amazing about Texas artists is that they're all so different and also original. You know, Rigor Mortis didn't sound anything like New Bohemians, and the Buckpets didn't sound anything like Shallow Rain. You know, <laughs> yeah, th- that type of stuff. I mean, everybody kind of had their own style, and their own thing, and it was uniquely original. Yeah, so we're not just grunge. We, we we crossed all kinds of boundaries here. We have tons of great, you know, acoustic singer-songwriters. We have tons of great female artists, absolutely amazing female artists. I've said it dozens of times before. I mean, our greatest natural resources are women musicians. I mean, if you look at from all the artists that, that DFW has produced, you know, everyone from Erica, obviously, to Nora Jones, Edie, you know, St. Vincent... It's it's a pretty impressive list, you know. One of the things I like about this may be a little bit of a reach, but a ton of the music that comes out of Texas to me always has a story. It's not just a sonic thing. There's a story there, which I really love. 
Yeah, that's the challenge as a songwriter is to, you know, write something that's memorable and make people think. Yeah. Oak Cliff is becoming real popular real estate. And I worry a little bit about the culture getting changed. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, I agree with you. Um, well, Bishop Arts District, first of all, has priced the artists out of the neighborhood. We're not in Bishop Arts District. There are a lot of developers here in the neighborhood that would like you to believe that we are. Uh, we're really not. We're not within walking distance of Bishop. Um I prefer that we use a different identity for this neighborhood, for this side of Tyler Street, and that's X+. Plus. That's where Kings Highway crosses Davis at an X angle there. That's kind of like the center of gravity for this end of the neighborhood. Right. Because the reality of it is this end of the neighborhood is very, very different than the Bishop Arts end of the neighborhood, which has been gentrified, which has been for lack of a better word, raped by developers over there. I mean, there are these huge high-rises going up. There's going to be an insane amount of traffic. And all of that property, the value of that property going up, has priced artists and creative people out of the neighborhood. Thankfully, our end of the street, a mile west, um, it isn't in the same place. I mean, we don't have high-rises going up over here. We don't have increased traffic. You can still park for free at the Kessler. I mean, parking is a nightmare in Bishop Arts. That's not us that's That's not what we do so when you see x plus you see somebody walking with an x plus shirt on or whatever that they're representing this end of the neighborhood the inner the neighborhood that still looks out for artists and creative folks they are the people that give this neighborhood flavor and and inspiration and creativity and we don't want to see that go away so what do you see the future of Oak Cliff? What do you, what do you see 10 years from now? And, and in turn for Dallas, I mean, it, it's, we, we talked a little bit about the beauty of Texas music. Uh, and I think uh, Oak Cliff, as well as Deep Ellum and Greenville, have, have, have uh, sprung back to life with some really new, new music venues and et cetera. What are your thoughts as we go forward? It's hard to say, but I'll tell you this. If you look back in the history of Dallas music, there have been periods where the center of gravity for the music scene in Dallas was on, say, Lower Greenville Avenue, back when the Arcadia was open and Tango and and Poor David's Pub and all that stuff. And then the center of gravity was on Northwest Highway, you know, when the Agora was there and Cardi's and all those during the 80s, you know, and the Ritz, you know. Um, Then there was a period of time where the center of gravity was in Deep Ellum, obviously, during the Depression era and then during the 80s and then now. And Oak Cliff, there was a period of time when it was the center of gravity with the Bronco Bowl, you know. Um, So it goes, it changes, it always flows. There's, There's a trajectory, kind of an ebb and flow of where the music scene really is blowing up in Dallas. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's hard to predict where the next place will be or whatever. What I'd like to see is Oak Cliff be able to reclaim the same um, the, the the same kind of cultural presence as it had when the Bronco Bowl was open. That'd be cool. Yeah. Any closing thoughts? Um, yeah. You know, there, there was a, a place in Fort Worth about 25 years ago called Caravan of Dreams. And Caravan of Dreams was purely committed to, to artistry. I mean, they brought in amazing musicians and, and dancers and, and poets and writers like William Burroughs and people like Timothy Leary. And I mean, I would love for the Kessler to be that Caravan of Dreams type place for this era of music in Dallas. 
You know, it was really hard. Nothing has has ever really recaptured, no venue in Dallas, I should say, has ever recaptured that same uh, culture that they had there. So it'd be nice to to get a little bit of that and also get the diversity uh, that they used to get at the Bronco Bowl and put those two things together and let the Kessler be uh, an example of that. I wish you can do it. I hope you can do it. I'm I'm rooting for you. We're trying. I think, uh, you know, and another thing that, that is true, and I don't, I don't know if you've ever taken this into consideration, but one of the reasons why the Kessler is popular is because folks who are our age who probably went to a live music venue every weekend when they were a teenager, uh, who loved live music, it was the most important thing in their life. Uh, when they were a young person, they got married, they had kids, and their priorities shifted. Their their priorities and their values changed, and, and the family became the top priority. And now that their kids are in college or, or out of the house or whatever, a lot of these folks have reconnected uh, with their love of live music. Absolutely. And one of the reasons why the Kessler is, is popular and successful is because we take those things into consideration. It's not too loud. The shows start on time at 8. They're usually over with by 1030. You're home by 11. You know, we, we make those accommodations for those folks who need need to, if they're going to see live music, they need those to be the perimeter of how it gets done. So that's what we're doing, and that's why we do it. That's great, Jeff. Hey, thanks so much for your time. Sure. Um, I hope to come back and visit with you from time to time, if that's all right with you. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Sure. Bye. Again, that was Jeff Lyles with Kessler Theater. That was really good. Here's a guy that truly understands music and community, but even more importantly, recognizes how they interact. The importance of the symbiosis between the two. (laughs) How's that for using a biological term on a music podcast? (laughs) Well, it fits as far as I'm concerned. That's an interview I'm going to pull out to listen to from time to time to help keep my head on straight. Well, that's it for Dogger and Muddy. You all take care, and next week, let's explore the world of band management. Till then, adios. Go to www.doggerandmuddy.com for more podcast interviews, blogs, photos, and information on the music scene. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Dogger and Muddy. <laughs>